Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the LSE. My name is Chris Brown. I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of International Relations uh, at the department here, and it's my great pleasure this evening to chair the inaugural lecture of my colleague, Professor William Callaghan. Um, Bill Callaghan came to LSE 18 months ago from Manchester University. Uh, in fact, he was uh, employed here using my salary uh, because I was on the way out. And for a year, we were both employed at the same time. So it was a rather d dangerous period where we felt there might be kind of matter, antimatter. If we were both in the same room at the same time, uh, the, the room would explode or something like that. But that didn't happen. So all was well. Uh, Bill made his name as a China specialist. His two most recent books on China dreams and the, the China, the pessoptimist nature. Have I said that right? Yes. Just about. It's quite difficult to say, pessoptimist. A pessimistic, optimistic nation. Uh, but as well as that work on China, he's now extending into the area of visual images in international relations and doing very exciting work in that area. And that's what he'll be talking about this evening. Uh, his title of the lecture is VIP, Visual International Politics. Now, before I formally introduce him, uh, can I do a bit of housekeeping? First of all, uh, I, I must say that this lecture is supported by the International Relations Department uh, at the LSE, so we've got to get a plug-in for that. Uh, uh, please turn down the sound on your phones, but if you uh, would like to tweet the evening, then the hashtag is LSEVIP. The evening's event is being filmed, as you can see. Uh, we can't <laughs> guarantee that there'll be a podcast afterwards, but we very much hope there will be. And after the lecture, there'll be a reception. Uh, and uh, Well, after the lecture, Bill will uh, answer question and answer for a little bit, and then there'll be a reception. So that's all the housekeeping. It's my very great pleasure to introduce... Bill Callaghan, and since it's visual, I'm now going to retreat into the audience until he's finished so I can see what's going on. Okay, well, thank you, Chris. Uh, it's, um, I'm very honored to actually replace you, though you're irreplaceable, of course. <clears throat> As I said before, what I really want is your old office. Uh, it's a very nice office. <clears throat> um, so what I'm going to do today is try and figure out how to use this thing. Oop. Huh. Technical help. Okay, super. <clears throat> so what I'm going to do today is um, <clears throat> kind of it's not a normal talk as I'm used to giving. Usually you give a talk about stuff that you've already done. Uh, for an inaugural lecture, uh, my understanding is, is I'm supposed to talk about stuff I'm going to do in the future. Uh, so rather than give you the uh, kind of full-length feature film, you'll be getting the film trailer version of my research. Um, so <clears throat> since the attack on the uh, office of Charlie Hebdo in January, um, I shouldn't have to justify the importance of visual images for international politics. Um, the attacks in Paris graphically showed the powerful conflict potential of the visual in world politics. They showed how visual images don't just represent something political, but can actually do political things. 
In this case, cartoons provoke people, they move people, they even mobilize people. <clears throat> in this case, or first to attack the satirical cartoonists in the name of defending uh, the sacred beliefs in Islam, and then they mobilize a different group of people for a mass demonstration in Paris to defend the sacred value of free speech. Um, strangely, <clears throat> although we live in a visual age, few academics actually study the role of images in international relations. So alongside this general lack of scholarship on the topic, I think that it's more than just this quantitative lack. There's also a qualitative question, um, a more pressing theoretical and methodological question, namely, how should we study visual international politics? Um, do we simply interpret images in much the same way as we interpret written texts? A few scholars are doing this by expanding the set of, their set of sources from official documents and elite interviews to consider how photography and film um, can tell us something about international politics. So I think most famously, uh, Cynthia Weber's book on IR theory, or IR theory textbook, um, uses feature films to explain realism, idealism, constructivism, and so on. Um, likewise, in my own work on East Asian IR, I use films, <clears throat> photographs, and art to explain regional international politics. But here, uh, people who are doing this are using visual images to explain something else. For example, explain IR theory, explain East Asia. Um, as far as I know, very little has been written that analyzes the workings of visual international politics itself. So today I want to think about how we can use visual images in a different way, <clears throat> not just as a new source to explain standard IR topics, but as a different way to do international politics. <clears throat> so over the next few years, I'll be working on a book that examines how images work in IR. <clears throat> It'll be organized according to themes and media. <clears throat> and the first few chapters, as you see, these are sort of chapter titles. Uh, will be first few, first few chapters, we'll look at issues of visuality and war, maps and sovereignty, <clears throat> and, and the geopolitics of gardens. I want to recognize the importance of photographs and film, but also signal that visual international politics is more than cultural studies or media studies. Um, <clears throat> theoretically, the book will question the empiricist view that photos, films, and maps objectively reflect reality, and it will do this by examining how visual images are social constructions that are the products of political interventions. <clears throat> so over the next, here I'll follow what IR scholars call the aesthetic term to show, for example, how maps can tell us more than about how to get from here to there. As Tongchai Winichikun's book, Siam Map, The Geobody of a Nation, shows, maps are technologies of power that can be used in political projects to mobilize the masses. And viewed in this way, maps don't just reflect truth so much as embody an ideology. Maps thus can mobilize the masses to declare independence from foreign colonization. But at the same time, mapping also has its own knowledge politics. To see is to control and to possess or to dispossess in the case of <clears throat> settler colonization. So I'm curious, does anybody know who this guy is on the left? This is a famous picture. Is it George? George Washington. So George Washington <clears throat> is most famous for leading the American Revolution 
against this fine country. Uh, but this picture shows how he was also, so again, he's kind of fighting against uh, kind of external power, external domination. But this image shows one of his other jobs. Uh, George Washington <clears throat> was actually the first sanctioned uh, surveyor in the colonies. And as this image shows, uh, he mapped Western Virginia, and it had you know, deadly, deadly consequences for Native Americans. So while he's mapping to, to possess something, to possess the frontier, he's mapping to dispossess the uh, Native Americans at the same time. The second image is one that comes from an aspirational map that came out in Russia last year. And this is, shows Russian, this is not an official map, this is a map by some think tanks. That was reported in another think tank, Foreign, Poli or Foreign Policy magazine. Um, it shows Russian aspirations for what the world should look like in 2035. Uh, so you can see how, you know, just down here, Italy is divided, this area is divided, Scotland is independent, Northern Ireland is part of Ireland, the Republic, that everything outside of Russia is kind of fracturing while Russia itself, there's another map that shows how Russia is expanding. So my point in showing these two images is that it shows how maps and cartography are actively involved in creating worlds and creating alternative worlds um, and changing worlds. <clears throat> Likewise, photos and film do not just record conflict. As Paul Virilio argues, war and cinema develop together through the interlocking visual technologies that define the industrial age. Um, we usually see visibility <clears throat> as a positive thing for progressive politics. It's necessary to make international problems like, for example, human rights violations more visible. And the idea is that they become more visible to a broader public um, they can be solved by this caring public that demands state action either through governments or through the United Nations. But as Virilio and other people have showed, uh, visuality in war is deadly. That to see is to target, and thus to see is to destroy. And so this, this picture, this photograph, is actually by one of my friends, <clears throat> Roland Bleeker, who lived in... Uh, in North Korea for a while. And this is a North Korean soldier kind of citing things to target them. Um, so here, my point is that we're switching from seeing photos and images as objective facts <clears throat> to see them as aesthetic creations. And aesthetic creations that just aren't, not aesthetics in the sense of being pretty, but aesthetics in the sense of being involved in political calculations that, that can involve <clears throat> death and destruction. When you think of gardens, you actually start from a different uh, starting point, uh, that the visual politics works in the opposite way, in the sense that the common assumption <clears throat> is that gardens are, aesthet are an aesthetic space that provides refuge from the messy politics of the everyday. Islamic gardens, like the one in the image, <clears throat> for example, are meant to evoke paradise, the Garden of Eden before the original sin, which is the ultimate pre-political state. But in fact, gardens can be imperial projects that assert state power. This is an image of Versailles. Um, Louis XIV built Versailles as a lab, a laboratory, for managing society and managing in a way that combined both soft power and hard power 
to assert state control over society and nature. I mean, as this image's image suggests, uh, the geometry here is used to integrate the empire's diverse elements into a common whole. Um, and so it was done kind of in terms of design, it's bringing all elements of what was then France and the empire together into one space, one kind of integrated space. But at a more basic level, Versailles was a, a part of international politics because it was a site of diplomacy, that a lot of uh, diplomats and foreign elites were brought to the garden. They were given garden tours that showed the you know, magnificence of France. Um, and the idea was to impress these foreigners with the technical and the cultural power of the French state. So what was going on in this garden is that it was defining what France was, both for French people and for foreigners at the same time. Similar things were going on in China at about the same time in the court of the Qianlong Emperor. Um, like with Versailles, Qianlong's garden was a social construction of a utopian world. It was a place where vassal states uh, presented tribute to the Son of Heaven, thus confirming this Sinocentric world order. And what, what is interesting to think about is how often the tribute that was brought was garden materials, kind of exotic plants from whatever country you were coming from, as well as ornamental stones. So kind of the, the gardening was built into this, <clears throat> this kind of imagined Sinocentric world order. But we also have to remember that this garden was a site of diplomacy. <clears throat> and uh, so Britain's Lord McCartney, when he went there in 1793, when he went to China in 1793, he went to this garden. Um, and he disturbed this Sinocentric world order by refusing to kowtow to the Qianlong Emperor. Um, and later, the garden itself became a site of international conflict. Alongside being a fabulous palace, the garden was a horrible prison where 18 European diplomats were tortured to death in 1860. This led to the Second Opium War, which in turn led to French and British, French and British troops uh, torching the garden. And this is a, from a museum, kind of, uh, talking about how the garden was being remembered as being uh, torched, being uh, burnt down. Um, and what is curious about this is in China this is seen as barbaric Westerners destroying Chinese civilization, um, which is certainly true. But in another way, it's a, it's a good example of what we now call smart sanctions. Because the idea here was not to punish all of China or not to publish all of Beijing. Because at that time, one of the things you did when you conquered a, a capital city is you burnt down the whole thing. Um, but rather than burning down the whole capital, they decided to, to target their punishment for the Qing kind of royal family, the Qing emperor, and burn down his garden rather than destroy the city. Um, <clears throat> so the French and Chinese imperial gardens exemplify uh, Zygmunt Bauman's discussion of modernity's gardening impulse. Uh, he argues that state violence is used to distinguish between weeds that must be exterminated and flowers that much must be nurtured. So certain people are seen as weeds, certain people are seen as flowers. Um, while, Bauer, while, while Bauman concentrates on the Holocaust um, and talks about how the Nazi Minister of Agriculture talked about Jews as weeds who need to be killed, 
Um, similar things were going on in China in the 1950s and 60s. Mao Zedong's political campaigns often used the gardening metaphor to distinguish between supporters as what he called fragrant flowers and dissidents as poisonous weeds who needed to be annihilated. Um, as you see, you can trim, trim people the same way you trim a hedge. Um, it's very odd. That's not Mao. That's, this is a satirical cartoon. It's not Mao's cartoon, I should say. So my point is that gardens, even though we think of them as very cultural and not very political, um, gardens are often involved in international politics in terms of diplomacy, war, and ideology. And if we step back and think about how I've been talking about visual international politics in the visual international politics of films, photographs, maps, and gardens, we can see that I've been, been following the aesthetic turn in IR by shifting from an empiricist approach that sees images as representations of true facts to uh, hermeneutics, <clears throat> which traces patterns of signification to show how the text can be understood in terms of the, content, the hidden content it discloses. So what are the limits of this aesthetic turn? It's generally concerned that the aesthetic turn is generally concerned with the politics of language. It sees that everything, it's, even images, have to be understood in terms of language games. And it involves a deep suspicion of visual images. <clears throat> Understandably, many scholars are worried <clears throat> about how common people can be charmed by the allure of images that promise scientific objectivity, authenticity, and neutrality. Visual images are commonly used by multinational corporations to dupe us into buying products that we don't need. So for example, one of the purposes of beauty palette pageants is to sell makeup. Um, and many felt that we were tricked by politicians into waging the Iraq war under false pretenses. Um, so this is you know, Colin Powell at the United Nations arguing for the, for the Iraq war in 2003. He's showing a vial of anthrax, which you would think it's not the sort of thing you could bring into the general or the Security Council. And then this is a famous, uh, this is from his PowerPoint presentation. People uh, criticize that a lot. I think that more generally in the academy, there seems to be a hierarchy of knowledge that values words over images. Many like to quote <clears throat> uh, Michael Ignatieff who dismissively said that the entire script of the CBS half-hour news program could fit on three-quarters of the front page of the New York Times. While avoiding the cliché of a picture is worth a thousand words, <clears throat> we need to think about, how, uh, think about what visual images can do that is different from words. This is where we move from the aesthetic turn in IR theory to what I call the visualizing turn, visualizing turn in international relations. And we're moving from hermeneutics quest for unveiling meeting to see what images can do in the sense of provoking new sights and senses of international politics. So rather than interpreting meaning, I'm interested to see how images can do things as uh, what Austin called a performative utterance. Uh, so when you're thinking of this in terms of language, it's like declaring, when I, as I declare war, is you're not describing something, you're doing something, you're declaring war. You're changing things. Um, David Campbell <clears throat> um, talks about this active notion of photographs. And when he's 
and he uses the example of the, the Darfur conflict in the mid-2000s to argue that images actually create geopolitics. They're creating a notion of self and other, both within uh, Sudan and kind of between uh, the West and Africa. Um, and the visual, he argues, is instrumental in creating this conflict, and in, in different ways he, he argues that a different set of images needed to be mobilized to solve the conflict. Here we're moving from a sense of Mike Shapiro's, sorry, here we're moving to Mike Shapiro's sense of post, a post-empiricist and post-hermeneutic mode of inquiry, which is helpful for understanding the non-linguistic and non-representational genres that dominate visual international politics. Um, wow. <laughs> This is also where we get into affect theory, which generally shifts our critical focus from facts to feelings. So rather than test the truth value of data, um, affect theory encourages us to appreciate what I call the cringe value of international and interpersonal encounters. Um, one way to do this is to expand from talking about visual images to actually making visual images as a research method. Um, so while most scholars are very suspicious of the power of, of images, um, I think that we should go to filmmaking because it involves a different set of ethics and a different set of methods. <clears throat> so rather than worry about manipulating the audience, as most do, uh, when you're making a film, the goal is to learn how to move people, how, in a way how to manipulate people's emotions. How, you want to make people laugh and make people cry. Um, so earlier today... We had the last session of a class that I'm teaching on visual international politics, and my students uh, in groups made films, made uh, six 10-minute films. And it was really impressive how they were able to kind of use this medium to do something quite different from writing an essay. It showed how a successful film is actually quite different from a successful essay. Uh, they showed how you need to effectively balance facts and feelings and how you have to get the proper rhythm between words and images. Um, and this shows, in a sense, how film production can inform theory production. So lately, <clears throat> I've been exploring how filmmaking can help us to creatively address some of the self-other issues that are at the cutting edge of international relations, namely the role of person-to-person -person relations, the, embodied, uh, the value of emotions and embodied knowledge, and the importance of the everyday. Uh, in a few moments, I'll show a film that I recently made called Toilet Adventures, and these are screenshots from Toilet Adventures. Um, that aims to, and what I aim to, to show is how field work that employs on-camera interviews um, does not just gather the facts of people's experiences, it can also illustrate the effective politics of estrangement, the estrangement, the giddiness, and thus the asset excess provoked by such experiences. Um, curiously, the uh, kind of founder of Feminist IR, Cynthia Enloe, recently challenged researchers to take notes in a brothel in a kitchen or a latrine in order to get a bottom-up understanding of international politics. As we'll see with my film, uh, Toilet Adventures suggests how bowel movements can actually provoke emotional movement and even political mobilization. Um, at least that's my understanding of it. 
Okay, so I'll just finish up by giving sort of a manifesto of my <clears throat> aims and objectives over the, pa- over the next few words. I'm sorry, the next few years. Um, I think my project, if you think of it more generally, it wants to explore how visual images are caught in a bunch of binary distinctions, the conceptually that's caught in these binary distinctions. Um, Things like the distinction between word and image, true and false, fact and feeling, ideology and effect, uh, orientalism and occidentalism. Well, it might be popular to argue that images are interesting because they help us to switch from one side of the binary to the other, from ideology to effect, for example. I think it's more interesting to see how fact and feeling interact through visual images. The key intervention, then, is not to reverse the binary uh, from, for example, the West to China, but to appreciate the dynamic tension that ties together China and the West. So to do this over the next few years, I'll be pursuing uh, four four goals, four general goals. First is to write a book and make some short films that explore the dynamic tension between ideology and effect. Uh, Second is to better integrate film production into mainstream teaching. Third is to set up an interdisciplinary visual international politics research group at the LSC. And last, I want to try to promote visual international politics at the LSC and then for the wider world by setting up a, a dedicated academic journal, an e-journal, basically, to show films, and, and also set up a social science film festival, probably based here at the LSE. Okay, so we have uh, a good period of time for questions. Can I uh, invite questions, comments from the floor? Preferably not many lectures. Uh, yeah, in the middle, please. There, we've, we've got microphones coming around, so uh, please wait for them so that we can uh, record. Um, Thank you for the talk. Um, It's something that I'm particularly interested in. Um, So I was wondering about, so you talk about that images can actually do politics, and I was wondering how you kind of, because I think the link is clear, but how do you go about, if you want to kind of make a more substantial claim, let's say you're saying that images are somehow affecting policy, for example, how do you measure that claim? Is it possible to measure? Is it, or are we kind of just theorizing the link? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a key question that people are thinking about now. And a lot of people are looking to things like securitization theory, which um, kind of looks at how um, when Government, government ministers say something like, this is a terrorist act. So, for example, last December, there was another big media kind of image politics uh, about the Hollywood film, um, The Interview, which was about some journalists, American journalists, going to North Korea and the CIA recruiting them to uh, assassinate the North Korean leader. And so this is a funny kind of bromance buddy movie. It's not a serious film. Um, but it became sort of securitized or became a big issue when um, somebody hacked into Sony that produced the film. And most people figure it was the North Korean, because North Korea has this kind of hacker's army that does quite sophisticated things. And they kind of screwed up and embarrassed Sony so that, at that point, it was not a security issue. It was a um, commercial issue. It became a security issue uh, a couple weeks later when the same 
group said um, that they were going to blow up theaters where the film was going to be shown. When it, uh, so this is when it became a security issue that President Obama said this is outrageous. The Secretary of Homeland Security said this is terrorism. So that's one way of thinking about how images get turned into how they do something is when government officials react like that. I'm actually interested in a much broader notion of, of uh, what other people call cult- cultural governance. So I think the... Uh, there was a film shown before uh, I started uh, Nika, by Nikabich. Did you see that? Was that shown? Yes. So that was a very curious thing. It's from 2010 when the French state um, criminalized wearing uh, the burqa in France. And what this film showed is what some young women did to kind of play with that uh, about three weeks before it became illegal. So if they did the same thing three weeks later, they would have been arrested. And it was just a very, to me, an interesting sort of reaction to um, government policy, kind of telling women how to dress, a dress code in France, um, but doing it in an, in an unexpected way. So they're wearing uh, kind of facial coverings and hot pants. So they're questioning the whole notion of what it means. Uh, <clears throat> so... To, to wear, to wear uh, certain kinds of clothes. That's kind of the more, that's the more, I'm, I'm more interested in that kind of notion of politics, that the, kind of the state or capitalism does something and then people resist in, in ways, and it's all about images. So in that film, uh, you didn't really have to understand French. You didn't have to understand much. You just look at it. Um, same thing with the, various cartoon controversies, how the cartoons, you don't have to really understand them. They provoke things, that they kind of create new uh, sights and senses of international politics. Um, and that's the sort of thing I was trying to do in that film. So the film is not the normal international relations thing where you talk about state-to-state relations between America and China or Europe and China. It's about people's experiences in China and how that affects uh, and creates how they relate to certain, how they relate to another country and how they relate to themselves. Lots of hands now. Uh, Right at the back there, and then over there, and then there. Should we gather questions? Um, If you would prefer. No? I think in some ways, if you answer directly, it's, it's it's, it's better. Yeah. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for the talk. It was really fascinating, as well as the documentary. Um, I can't help but ponder this, because I pride myself on thinking outside of IR, I'm actually an artist and a painter. And to me, it just seems like a very different form of being in the world and knowledge production than what we're accustomed to, you know, in disciplinary politics and whatnot. So I guess your presentation provoked a few questions for me, and I'll try to link them together. I think, first off, I agree with you, you're right, in that even with post-structuralism the discipline, I still think there was a heavy emphasis on the linguistic turn. And we're still dealing with the implications of that, of trying to recover, for example, new materialism or practices. So I guess the first part of my question would be, uh, do you see a role for capturing visual international politics in terms of materiality? And I can't help but think of the analogy of art being, you know, 
multidimensional, having a very material aspect, not just a textual or linguistic aspect. So how could we incorporate that into our studies of international politics? Uh, Related to that, uh, you mentioned resistance. And so there's that analytical dimension, but I'm wondering about the normative dimension as well. Um, We see art being used in places like Tahrir Square, graffiti, and whatnot. Um, So I would extend that analysis of materiality to the normative dimension. Do you think we're in the position to offer different conceptions of resistance through visual politics? And if I may, a final point, then I'll shut up after this, is um, we often talk about philosophy of science and philosophy of history in the discipline. But I wonder if there's a philosophy of art, you know, and how that can be tied to the study of IR. Thank you. Enough to go on with. (laughs) So I guess we can gather three questions from you. (laughs) No, no, I'll I'll tell this now. Uh, Well, thank you. I mean, these are are great issues, and these are the issues that I'm thinking about. in, in preparing for the course that I just finished teaching this term on, on visual international politics, I was really astounded by the, how the people who are at the cutting edge of doing uh, analysis on photographs and film and IR um, really are tied to language, and they have a really hard time thinking about how images or, or materiality, like gardens is materiality, it's not an image, um, how they might be doing something different. So it's fine. I understand and I do it. I interpret the meaning of things and I use a linguistic term to do that. But I'm trying to push beyond that to think about how other things are going on. Um, it's very hard to talk about them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an odd contradiction to talk about the non-linguistic, to use language to talk about the non-linguistic, to the non-representational. But, you know, I'm trying. Um, but I think, yeah, the materiality is, is part of what I'm doing. So that's why I'm interested in things like gardens, uh, kind of living, breathing things, and how they make us think differently and act differently. Um, but it's also materiality just in terms of... So Frances Wood, who was talking about the lavatorial experience during the Cultural Revolution, she went to, to China as one of the first British students to go in the 1970s. And one of the things she did was to collect stuff. And at that point, there was really nothing to buy in China. There was no consumer society at all in the 70s. The only thing you could buy, one of the few things you could buy were these enamel mugs that were decorated with things. So she has a huge collection of enamel mugs. Um, When I went 10 years later, in the mid-'80s, they had this very odd, it was kind of an proto-consumer society, you couldn't buy many things, but they had these little trinkets. And one of the trinkets that you could buy was uh, pencil sharpeners. So they had pencil sharpeners representing all sorts of different things. Um, So that's one of the things I want to do, actually, here at the LSE, is put together an exhibit and have it in the, um, the student center of stuff that people collected at different times in China. So we'll have some of um, Francis's mugs, some of my pencil sharpeners, and other things that you buy later. And that, again, it's not, it's not kind of telling us so much about the facts of China, except for maybe you can look at it in terms of political economy. But it's telling you more about the feelings and just stuff that people did and stuff that people experienced um, at a certain time and place. Um, I'll think about your other questions. They're very good. Thank you. 
Um, hi, uh, thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I, I was actually um, studying MSCIR, so I find this really refreshing and I wish that I was um, actually doing the course this year so I can have a bit of insights into this um, topic. So I have two points to make. Uh, one is a more theoretical point on whether you're looking into the role of photographers or the filmmakers. Um, Sorry, the what? The role um, of the photographers and the filmmakers. Are you interrogating the privilege of photographers or filmmakers or whoever who having those tools to produce knowledge? Um, so, for example, people in, um, in the case that you quoted in um, uh, South Sudan, well, they don't have the tools to produce knowledge. And are you examining examining that angle in your research. Uh, and another point to make it uh, more practical, uh, so just to uh, introduce the, the, the work that I'm doing. Um, I, am, uh, I started an organization aiming to empower women through photography and uh, it's supported by the LSE careers and uh, I would be really interested to see if there's any way to collaborate to see if you can, uh, we can integrate your research into the uh, photography programs we're doing in Pakistan. Thanks. Uh, super. Um, yeah, I'd love to work with you to, to see what we can do. Um, that's, again, um, I taught the course. You couldn't have taken that course. It's an undergraduate course, so it's not open to master's students, unfortunately. Um, the role of photographers, that's one of the big arguments, or the, the big things that people say to criticize sort of the global political economy of images, that it's often... Western and white and male photographers who are parachuted in to take pictures of, um, say, Africans as Africa as a site of disaster and war. And it's very disempowering the way they do this. That's the photograph I had up there um, was an example of this uh, trope of taking, making Africans look like victims. Um, and that is disempowering. And, and then the other picture was of burning villages. And that, that was an example of a, a photograph that was used in a different way to empower people. It was used as evidence to say that there's a um, war crimes going on at that point, And therefore, it could mobilize various actions. And it was, it was very, and this is work done by David Campbell. Um, it was very interesting how it was, and through his analysis, you can see it's quite clear, you know, how the photographs are taken and, and what use you put to them is very political. And that, that's how those photographs are doing stuff. And they're not just representing things. I think they're actually kind of making people do things. Um, yeah. Coming down. Oh, thank you for a wonderful uh, lecture, uh, very nostalgic for somebody who was, first of all, in Beijing on the eve of National Day 1971. And, uh, but I don't want to talk about that. I'll ask you about whether you see your role as being to bring into play things like uh, oh, national ceremonies you know, at the Cenotaph here, things like uh, people arriving on state visits and how they're treated and military displays which are very much part of the 
visual image that people have had of various countries. And the other areas, you, you mentioned cartoons as being, in a sense, very visual, but very often they have words with them. And I've got a feeling that you could do very good introductions to both the culture and the language of different countries by using cartoons, sometimes, you know, just to give the background as to why they have an impact, and sometimes to explain the brief language that they often include. Wow, Beijing 1971. I should talk to you some more. I hope I can. Um, yeah, I, I think that looking at ceremonies, whether it's a military parade or a state visit, is a very good way of thinking about how international politics works through these visual images, that these images are just really important, that they, they don't just um, give you some facts. They do give you some facts. They do give you some information. But I'm also interested in seeing how they generate feeling so that, um, you know, when I hear the national anthem, I get a, you know, tickle up my spine or something. Um, and that's, that's the sort of thing I'm trying to um, explain and explore because it's very, it's, of course, it's very hard to, to explain and explore that. Um, yeah, and cartoons, it's, they're a very good example of how word and image often interplay, that you don't, you don't really understand a cartoon until you read the thing, the, uh, the words. Um, so that's why I'm not trying to switch from, totally from, from language to images, but I want to look at the interplay between them. I need somebody really from over there. My colleague is beginning to feel uh, left out. Uh, yeah, in the middle. Thank you for a wonderful talk. And uh, you did mention Francis Wood. Uh, I want to throw in a question, and maybe because um, it's actually started one, but then it might be related to the overall relationship of the uh, Chinese and Western culture. It did first develop uh, with Marco Polo, but I meant, you mentioned Francis Wood, and I may know of her theory that she said Marco Polo never got to China. He wrote about it, but he never actually got there. I don't know if you know of this controversy, but that probably was the first contact between the West and China, and that might, uh, so I would, if you could comment on, if you know about Francis view and also relate to the overall history of the cultural relation Europe and China since then. Do you, do you know that she did have this, she's got this view that Marco Polo never got there? Yeah, she got death threats from, because of that, from that book. Um, I, don't, I don't really know, but it's, it's, quite, it's very, I asked her about that when I was doing the interview, and it was just quite astounding how, how that really provoked people and upset people, um, that this whole notion that Marco Polo went to China was very, very dear to a lot of people, and they, they really didn't want to have it questioned. At the back. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. really enjoyed that. Um, a quick question about the visual turn and how IR is inherently a textual type of discipline. Um, one of the things that caught me about your video was the title, uh, Toilet Adventures. So it seems that every video, despite being visual, is inexorably tied to text. It's the title, right? What movie should we see? Well, who's in it? What's it called? Um, so just wondering, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but what is the connection between 
this text, the title, and the video that comes forth if you're trying to create a new space for debate? Is that space not, in a way, framed by the title you give it? That's it. Uh, I know you're a partisan for the linguistic turn. Um, I, I guess, again, that's what makes video... So most people who study visual international politics study photographs. Uh, almost all of them do. And one of the main arguments is that you really need some, either a caption or an explanation to understand a photograph, that a photograph can't stand alone. When you start doing films... Um, that complicates things because there's often, especially in my film of talking heads, there's people talking, so there's some language there already, there's some uh, subtitles, there's the title itself. So that's why I think it's that looking at films is much more productive because the, the visual and the linguistic is already there, they're already intertwined. Um, at the same time, I don't... I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take a stand here. I don't think that everything boils down to language. I think that there's something else there. And that's, I can't really explain it yet, but that's what I'll be doing over the next few years. So I'll get, get back to me in five years. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, in... In historical time, we've seen the power to transmit images shift from, for instance, um, the crown. Here, Queen Elizabeth sent um, images of herself around to different parts of the country in order to convey her power um, to our time where the extreme illustration is YouTube, where we, members of the public, can contribute very powerful images to what's in circulation. Is this something that you can handle? I mean, it is such an extreme change from the concentration of power over once and the total um, diffusion of power now. Is that a problem that you can help us to understand? Yes. <laughs> um, no, you, you, you've really pointed out a, a big an important issue, this sort of technological change and the either popularization or democratization of images and, to some extent, politics. And that's the sort of thing that I'm very interested in. But I, I, I don't want to get bogged down too much in the technical issues because often they overwhelm us. And, and the, as we've seen, the technology keeps changing more and more and more. Um, the main thing I want to point out is the, I guess, the argument that um, Paul Virilio made and other people have made is that, um, for example, war and photography and film have developed together, that a lot of the, the technology for sighting um, out of airplanes um, was developed for um, photography, and then a lot of the next generation of photography came out of these war sighting things. So that this this whole notion of targeting and taking photographs, um, and now taking films, ha they've evolved really closely. And it's you really, rather than trying to untangle them, I I think it's very important just to appreciate how 
they are all, they're just so implicated into each other. That this, it's not just about representation, it's about power. It's about destructive power in photography. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. I'd just like yeah. to say uh, thank you for the talk. I'm a second year IR student who's probably going to be taking this course next year, so I'm quite <laughs> excited to do that. Uh, it's kind of similar to the question just asked, but do you think we should be looking at the role of social media when we're kind of studying international politics? Like how important do you think something like Twitter will be in kind of spreading these images? I'm thinking kind of ISIS kind of beheading videos and that very much that's how we're conveying messages now to kind of a younger audience as well. Yeah, I agree. I guess the one thing that I didn't say to the previous um, <clears throat> questioner is the problem with trying to follow the technology is that by the time you write about it, it's over. There's a new technology. Um, so Snapchat has kind of overwhelmed YouTube to a, lot of, to a large extent. And by the time I could publish something about Snapchat, it'll be gone. There'll be something else. So you can still talk about it as as the way technology changes, but it, the technology is moving so quickly. So the technology of, of doing stuff, especially through social media, is much quicker than the technology of academic publishing. Absolutely. I think everything's faster than the technology of academic publishing. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm interested in social media. So the last section of my book will be looking at um, the interaction of and the interplay of mass surveillance through the NSA and the GCHQ and in China, the Great Firewall, things like that. And at the same time, um, social media. Because um, it's quite, it was interesting to me to prepare for the lecture I gave on um, mass surveillance. It seemed that the people who write about mass surveillance were just a bunch of old guys who didn't really understand what was going on. And so they were just really outraged at all the people who are on Facebook who are giving up their privacy, how they were not concerned about privacy, how these people who they saw as young people really wanted to perform. So the whole point of going on social media is to perform, to expose yourself to some extent. Um, and I found that there was a big disconnect between the, the experts who are writing about uh, privacy and mass surveillance and then everybody else who's actually involved in social media. So I'd like to look at, at the sort of why this is so and why, why things are changing and what privacy means to people, uh, you know, different people at different, either different ages or different places, because I think that's the sort of thing that's missing from this study of mass surveillance and the study of the um, social media. Yeah, I think Facebook is for old people nowadays as well, aren't they? It is, yeah. Uh, over there and then over there, yeah. Hello, my name is Anton. So I did, uh, a year ago I did research on Bashar al-Assad's use of Instagram. And when trying to write up research, I'd, I had a lot of trouble linking. So yes, he's doing this propaganda. Yes, he wants to present something. But how do you measure how decision makers are affected by this? So as a whole, like the toilet presentation, how would you measure how that affected anything? For my, I mean, for my own film, it was not about foreign policy in the sense of 
Beijing and London or Beijing and Washington, D.C. I was taking a different notion of foreign policy as something that people do on a day-to-day basis, um, how we relate, how how we create ourselves by interacting with other people, so self-other relations, and how this actually kind of comes out and manifests itself sometimes in these sort of state-to-state things of China and non-China in this case, or China and Thailand, China and Britain, China and the U.S. So, you know, the guy, uh, Sir Christopher, is an ambassador. So he's, he wasn't representing um, the Queen when he was talking about his lack of toilet adventures, but he was talking about, in a way, uh, sovereignty is sovereign control over these day-to-day functions and how he was really happy that he never had to uh, encounter a Chinese toilet in extremists, so to speak. Um, so, you know, it's, what I'm trying to do is to, to expand what we mean by foreign policy and expand, I mean, it's not just me, other people are doing this, of course, as well, and I take a much broader notion of what foreign policy is. So it's, it's not just what the government is saying, but how people interact in society. Um, for looking at Instagram, that's, that's where you go into audience studies, and that's not really my area. It's a sort of, but it is an important thing to do. So it's not just um, how we interpret what an image or a cartoon or a film, whatever, means, because um, who cares what I think? It really matters what other people think. So we have to understand why, say, the ISIS videos are very attractive to some people and how they mobilize certain feelings. Um, uh, One person was arguing that uh, the ISIS videos are effective because they glamorize things, that you're joining a revolution, you're joining an adventure, you're joining something new, you're, you're creating an alternative society. And the way to fight them if you want to have, have alternative videos, it's not, to, it's not to say that people are going to get killed, because that's part of the adventure. What you, one person said that the way to fight such videos is to say that going to uh, the Islamic State is boring, that you'll spend your day washing dishes and cleaning up after other people, and that it's not, it's not exciting. So that's, I guess, one way to, to think about it. Hi, Bill. Thanks for that. Um, I've got two questions. Um, one relates to the, the work itself and what you're doing, and the second one relates specifically to the, to the video. first one is in relation to doing uh, a kind of cultural turn within IR. I, I mean, presumably IR must be a very diff- different discipline to politics because my experience through two, IR, uh, two, two ref kind of panels is that anything that relates to art and politics gets slaughtered. So I wondered how politically you're going to work the politics of the cultural turn. That was the first question. Second one is in relation to the actual video itself, and because I think a, uh, there is a lot of mileage and a, a lot of long history of essentially looking at shit. I mean, the Crystal Palace, which essentially, if you follow kind of Peter Slaughterdyke, now creates the, the artificial world in which we live, begins actually with the first public toilets that you pay for. You've got Marcel Morse's study of, um, of soldiers in the First World War, French soldiers squat differently to English ones, and it leads to a different kind of um, comportment. 
What I didn't see in the video, though, was, in a sense, any, any movement in terms of visuality. It was very much talking heads, and therefore it seemed to me that, it, in fact, far from doing a cultural turn, it was doing a textual turn within a cultural setting. And I just wanted to know whether you had any comment on that. Thanks. Okay. Uh, we should ask Professor Brown about the REF, because he was on the panel. <laughs> Certainly untrue that uh, artwork and politics was penalized in any way. Absolutely not. My, my sense is that um, it's, it's okay to talk about culture and things. It's not okay to make films because there's no way to legitimate, um, rec kind of have recognition for a film. So, my, so I was taught by a bunch of visual anthropologists, and for them it's okay. There's a whole subfield of visual anthropology, and if your film gets accepted at a film festival, that is the equivalent of being published, according to them. Um, that, you know, I don't think that the REF panel knows that. If I told them, they wouldn't care. There were films submitted. Okay. How did they do? Pretty well. Okay. Depended. Okay. Um, that's why in my sort of manifesto at the end, I thought these, we need to get films on journals, referee journals, whether it's a, so there's millennium editors back there. We should kind of give them a hard time. Uh, so you should, you, you two should have uh, a spot on your website for videos uh, so that they can be published and they can be peer-reviewed. Um, I was also suggesting to just set up a dedicated sort of visual international politics journal because they do that in other fields. I'm really surprised it hasn't been done in either politics or international relations as far as I know. Um, yeah, the politics of shit is really quite interesting because once you start talking about this, it's not just everybody has a story. Um, it's that it, it kind of tells you a different side of things and um, a different, you can call it bottom-up if, if you don't mind the pun. Uh, and I'm, but I'm not sure I want to be kind of the politics of shit guy. Um, <laughs> That's not, or the politics of toilets. I'm not Good sure <laughs> that's what I want to be on my uh, tombstone. Uh, you're right about the, uh, how my film, in some ways, if, since I'm trained as a visual anthropologist, the film is a failure because it's not about visuality at all. It's about talking heads. Um, but that's what I was trying to do, is to see how how through editing and kind of very simple editing, you can provoke emotions, whether people laughing or cringing or, or not crying in this case, but um, how you can, so if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't trust it, you say I'm manipulating people. If you do like it, then you say that I'm evoking images. Um, but I found that, because I have actually a lot of, film of really dirty toilets in China. And I, and, but I decided not to put them in because I thought that evoking the imaginations, people's imagination of these toilets or memories of them if you've been there, um, would be m much more effective than just looking at a toilet. Except for I was like, oh, you know, because you can't smell it in the film. It's just like, oh, you know, it's not so bad. Um, but you're right, it's, it is... It's a certain kind of film that 
that doesn't really um, exploit the kind of visuality of um, things. Last question, I think. Well, we've given uh, a pretty good workout. Yeah. I wonder whether you have any insights into how the events, images particularly, strong ones from September 11th, 2001, uh, are, are or were perceived in China? Um, that's a good question. I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Um, I guess I'll have to, I'll have to explore that. Before, uh, before we thank Bill, can I say that uh, I'm pleased to say there'll be a reception uh, after the lecture now, uh, to which you all... Yes, I was about to, <laughs> before you interrupted me. <laughs> and so I won't tell you. <laughs> uh, the, reception, the reception will be in the old building on the fifth floor in the senior common room. The old building is the building that's opposite this one. Uh, and it's about the same age as this one, so it's a little confusing. But never mind, you can handle it. The senior comm room for, for the LSE people uh, present. So, okay. Uh, and there's, there's wine and some food there. Um, wine and so food. Please come and eat it I, for me. Yeah, because otherwise breakfast tomorrow is going to yeah. be uh, tricky. I really, uh, I hope we can all express our thanks to Bill for what has been, I think, a really entertaining talk and a great discussion. Uh, thanks very much.